Good morning. It's lovely to be with you. I don't know if any of you saw last week the London Marathon and the images that came from that marathon of all the baggage that some people were carrying. Remember the guy who was carrying Big Ben on his shoulders? It's quite extraordinary. And it got me to think about the things that we carry in our lives that are weights that kind of impede our progress. And as we come to look at a new series this morning, I was mindful. I've been in Durham teaching last week and again this week. And uh, I got to know the taxi driver quite well because it was the same guy each day. And by Friday afternoon, at the end, he said, you haven't got a few moments, have you? Because I'd had the opportunity to share with him a little bit what I did. And by the grace of God, that kind of made some connections. And he just poured out his heart about a situation in his family where one of his daughters-in-law, through a little remark that his wife had made three Christmases ago, no longer speaks to he or his wife and keeps the grandchildren from their grandparents. And the guy started to well up with tears in his eyes because clearly it was an incident which was holding people locked in the prisons of unforgiveness. And the damage to the relationships was just self-evident to me, a, a client in a taxi. I was with one of our Northumbria community folks in Barnsley the other week, and he'd been to a funeral, the funeral of a friend. And at the friend's funeral, the friend's brother was not at that funeral because many years ago in the miners' strike, the brother had remained and continued to try to work and broken the picket lines. He was known by the brother as a scab. And a family was divided. Life does stuff to us. There might not be extreme things like that, but as a result, we carry around baggage. And through those things, our hearts and minds are revealed attitudes. How we respond to hurts shapes us. We know from the realms of psychology and psychotherapy, but the scriptures are abundantly clear. If we don't deal and process with hurt in our lives then actually it can turn very easily to bitterness and a root of bitterness goes in and it poisons us, it impacts our lives and also those who have to live with us because they cop for some of the transference of the things that we continue to carry. There's that um, lovely story of the little girl in Edinburgh, in Princess Street, Edinburgh, who's looking at the bagpiper And after listening to him play for a little while, she looks up at him and says, if you let go, it'll stop screaming. (laughs) In this series where we're looking at the Bible and what it says about life issues, I mean, Hebrews says that the Bible is a living thing that speaks to us. We're looking today at how we can stop screaming, how we can deal with unforgiveness, how we can learn what it is to be in relationship. Because life is about relationships. You and I are made in the image of God. The God whom we worship is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. There's a unity and diversity in the Trinity. And we are made in the image of God. We're made for relationships. Western individualism is not how God created the world and intended it to live. There's a German theologian called Jürgen Moltmann who says, it's high time the church rediscovered the doctrine of the Trinity not as a doctrinal statement, but as a lived reality, so that we can learn to discover what it means to relate together, because that's how God wired us and made us. We're made in the image of God. Jesus on one occasion was asked what the great commandment was, and he said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's all about relationships. All about relationships. Think for a moment about what it means to be in love. 
To be truly loved. To be truly loved by God makes a difference to your life, doesn't it? Well, perhaps once more with enthusiasm. To be truly loved by God makes a tremendous difference to our lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. To love another person is fantastic. See, I once had hair. In 1976, I had a beard. You had to grow a beard if you were only 19 and getting married just to look a bit older in those days. And 43 years on, we're still in love. She's not with me, sadly, this morning. She's not watching Rotherham or down watching North Allerton at the rugby. She's actually in Ireland with some of our family. But it is lovely to be in love, isn't it? Should we just stop and have a time of ministry now? There is permission if you are with your partner, if those who are with you are those whom you love and care for, there's a moment to just clasp their hand and just say, I love you. I'm really impressed that Northern Yorkshire folk can do that in public. It's really good. It's fabulous to know that you're loved in any context of love. It's just great. It makes a difference. But then broken relationships are the very opposite, aren't they? Because when there's broken relationships, there's pain and there's struggle and there's heartache. We are social beings. Life is about relationships. How we relate to God and one another, our neighbour, our people in the workplace, the church. We're social beings made in the image of God. Relationships hold for us the promise of that which is so good in life but it also carries with it the potential for that which brings so much pain and injury. I think as a pastor, because I'm an old pastor now, as I reflect on my life, the thing that has troubled me more than anything else is when Christians can't get on with one another. It grieves me more than any theological statement, any doctrinal basis. Why does it grieve me? Because I believe it's a sin in the eyes of God. When Jesus gathered his disciples together on that night before he was betrayed, taken out and crucified, he was the rabbi sharing really important words to his disciples, the things that really mattered. And you've got it there in John 14 through 17. And Jesus prays that his disciples will be one as he and the Father are one. And then he leaves this phenomenal statement. He said, by this the world will know that you are my disciples. If you believe in the penal substitutionary theory of atonement, no. If you love one another, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And to not love one another is evil in the sight of God and a sin and grieves the Holy Spirit. And we need to repent of any attitudes, any words, any actions that lead to disunity within the body of Christ. Lord, have mercy upon us. It grieves not only me as a pastor, but it would grieve any pastor because it grieves the Holy Spirit. Sadly, these things do happen, don't they? Because we're broken people and we mess up and we make mistakes. We get hurt and we are hurt. And the church is not immune to such things. And that's why the Word of God speaks so powerfully and practically into how we can address these issues and live the life that Jesus wants us to live alone and together. Forgiveness is not so much a doctrine, it's not words of a song, it's not a concept, 
But it's actually a gift and a way of life. Forgiveness is a way of life. It's the way God intends us to live, to experience his redemption. Let's take a look. Oh, this wonderful words from Martin Luther King. Forgiveness is not an occasional attitude, it's a way of life. Think about that experience in Matthew chapter 5 through 8, where Jesus, in the early days of people following him, takes his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount and he teaches them. Now picture the context. Northern pioneer. They were northern disciples, all right? They were northerners. It was rather cruel of Luke to say in Acts that some of them were ignorant and unlearned. There was no need to put that in Acts of the Apostles. And here are these northern blokes. They're with Jesus. They're following. It's the early days. And Jesus comes out with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who suffer. And you can imagine these northern blokes going, wow, it's cracking lake. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. Hey, anybody got any idea what he means like? Because why I? <laughs> but the thing is that nobody said why I, because actually they were going, I sounds kind of like, but... And this is the genius of the Rabbi Jesus, the brilliant teacher, who never taught like anybody else did. He taught with authority. Jesus takes these profound, spiritual, theological, life, philosophical statements, and then he goes immediately to apply them. He's the great applied theologian. The first thing Jesus runs on to say was, you've heard that it was said, but I'm telling you, Don't kill each other. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, and if you want to be part of the church, the first thing that you and I have got to learn is how not to kill each other. What's the thing that damages church and society more than anything else? Our inability to get on with people who are different from us. It's one of the big issues we're facing in Britain today. Think of the context. Simon the Zealot. Now, Simon the Zealot was a terrorist. He killed and plotted the murder and destruction of the dominant empire, the the occupying Roman Empire, the Roman army. We're told that among those disciples of Jesus was a man called Matthew the tax collector who collected taxes for the Roman Empire. Do you think that somehow Matthew the tax collector and Simon the Zealot coming to Jesus simply said, Bind us together, Lord. (laughs) I don't think so. They had to learn how not to kill each other. I'm pretty sure when Jesus sent them out in twos, he said, Simon, you go with Matthew. (laughs) And they came back rejoicing, but Matthew came back very tired because he didn't sleep, just in case Simon backslid. (laughs) Seriously, you see, that's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't faff around with stuff that we kind of, you know, the doctrinal minutiae. He transforms our hearts and teaches us how to live. How to not be dominated by money and sex and power. How to live the kingdom life. How to live as God intended. And in order to do that, the first thing we've got to do is learn not to kill each other. He goes on, but I'm not preaching on Matthew, about how not to commit adultery. Because actually, Jesus knows our hearts. There are men who are away from home. And the Bible tells us they're supported by rich women. There's two temptations there. Jesus doesn't deal with the superficial stuff. He goes right to the hearts. And the great liberating good news of the gospel is Jesus helps us to live pure lives, to enjoy good, healthy relationships with people of the opposite sex. There's a purity and a holiness that Jesus brings because he's able to transform our hearts. But in the context of forgiveness, we've got to learn to forgive. It's a way of life. We can operate superficiality 
or we can be real with God. And if we're going to be real with God, then that means that we rub up. We, we do hurt one another on occasions, don't we? We don't intend to sometimes, but it just kind of happens because we're a mixed bunch of people. Isn't it great when all the kids go out and all the congregation gathers? There's people of all ages here and all different persuasions and all different backgrounds and political outlooks and outlooks on life generally. And in Jesus, we've come together. It's great, isn't it? But in order for that to be real and less than superficial, we have to work at things, don't we? Because people say things or behave in ways that just kind of press our buttons. Jean Vanier, who was the founder of the Lash community, who's actually on his deathbed at the moment, who writes so brilliantly on community because he's lived it. He says this, community is a terrible place. (laughs) I'm part of a Christian community. I would say yay and amen to this. It's a place where our limitations and egoisms are revealed to us. When we begin to live full time with others, we discover our poverty, our weakness, our inability to get on with others. That's the reality. And Peter, bless him, Peter, when he asked Jesus on one occasion, so if we're going to be your disciples and not kill each other and have to get on with one another, how many times do we have to forgive people? Now the classic Judaic response from the rabbi would be three times. But Jesus says 70 times seven. And I don't think somebody got a calculator out and said, right, right, 491st time they've had it. Jesus was saying we forgive unconditionally and boundlessly. So let's explore what the Bible says, because how on earth do you do that? Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's a very familiar, it's probably the most famed prayer. How do we do that? Well, the New Testament uses a number of words for forgiveness, but two primary words for forgiveness. And the first is that of aphemi. It's used 130 times in the New Testament, but it's predominantly used by Jesus in the Gospels. And it carries with it this connotation to apot is to separate, haime is to send away, throw away, get rid of, leave, let go. And learning to forgive is learning to let go. To forgive is to give up all hope of a better past. I want us to say together, these are some words from our Northumbria community Celtic daily prayer, prayer called in brokenness. O God, I cannot undo the past or make it never have happened, neither can you. There are some things that are not possible even for you, but not many. I ask you humbly and from the bottom of my heart, please God, would you write straight with my crooked lines? Out of the serious mistakes of my life, will you make something beautiful for you? Teach me to live at peace with you, to make peace with others, and even with myself. Give me fresh vision. Let me experience your love so deeply that I am free to face the future with a steady eye, forgiven and strong in hope. Isn't it good that we have a God who can make straight from our crooked lines? Who is able to take the mistakes that we make and by his grace create something beautiful out of that which is ugly. Forgiveness is not a passive act. It's an act of bravery and courage. And to be honest, we need Jesus' help to help us to forgive. And remember that the Jesus whom we celebrate and worship and the Jesus who remembered at Easter in his crucifixion and his resurrection is the Jesus who knows what it's like to be a victim. Jesus has been hurt. He's been rejected. He's been despised. 
He knows what it is to be a victim. And Jesus is able to help us to refuse to have our life defined by the narrative, the life script, that we are victims. Please hear this. If you feel a victim this morning, that Jesus does not want you to continue your life as a victim. He wants to breathe new life into you. That you can conquer that which has scarred you, whatever that experience is. And in order for that to be realized, we actually have to let go. We have to release anyone who has hurt us from the prisons of our own unforgiveness. And that's hard. That's why we need Jesus' help. Because our natural inclination is to say, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. And it begins in the heart. It doesn't begin with the lawyer. It doesn't begin with the solicitors. It doesn't begin in the court case. It begins in the heart. The Jesus who transforms our hearts enables us to live in a place where we are able to offer forgiveness. We all have the power to choose. And the choice to forgive is a deliberate, intentional act. It's a purposeful act. It looks fairly and squarely at the landscape of life or what's happened to us. However wrong it is, how horrendous it is, it then makes the decision that the only way I can move on here to possess what God wants me to possess is to learn by the grace of God and the help of Jesus to forgive and to let go. Making that decision is like a starting gun. That then you enter the race and the race can be long and hard because... For some people, life has brutalized them and wounded them and scarred them very, very deeply. So this is not an easy race, but it's a race that cuts the chains, using another imagery. It cuts the chains of wounding. Wounding can become history and not the continuing present reality. Forgiveness breaks the cycle of self-justification, of bitterness and anger. Forgiving others requires that we release our need for justice or more accurately, revenge, or payback. These are hard things. To forgive is to surrender and to let go. That's what the New Testament word is. To let go. To let go. Psychotherapists will tell us that actually, in letting people go from the prisons of our unforgiveness, not only are those people released, but we ourselves are released from the thing that holds us back. The second word is that of charisma, charismai, charis and grace, to bestow a favor unconditionally, to be kind and benevolent, to pardon and to bless. Let's take a look at two passages of scripture here. Ephesians 4.32. Would the folks in the balcony just read that for us please? Speak out to those here down below. And those in the cheap seats, the stalls. If you read Colossians 3.
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a very different way of life, isn't it? You see, the ways of the kingdom are very different from the ways of the world. And yet that's what we are called to do, alone and together. To not enact revenge or retaliate when we are wronged, but to forgive is a really different way to live, isn't it? The Bible is even more cruel. You know, it was it Tony Campolo said, it's not the bits of the Bible that I don't understand that give me problems, it's the bits that I well understand that give me the biggest challenges. And so we read in Scripture abundantly when Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Bless your enemies. When, for goodness and God's sake, is the Western world going to realize that if you bomb people, you make enemies. If you feed people, you make friends. Scripture is abundantly clear about this. Bless your enemies. And we have as a Western nation to ask, how are we blessing our enemies? We have starved millions of people and the consequences of which we are seeing enacted in the violence and conflict and terrorism that is throughout the world today. You see, these words of Jesus are very relevant for the crisis that we face in the world. But it's a different way of living, isn't it? And again, like, like letting go, the practical outworking of what it means to follow Jesus begins in the heart. To bestow favour, to bless, to unconditionally love and to set free. And it begins with the realisation that God who has loved us and forgiven us calls us to forgive other people in the same way that he has forgiven us. Now, it's not the issue we're dealing with directly here, but it's really important to understand this, that unless we fully embrace the fact that God absolutely loves us and utterly and totally forgives us, we will never be in a place where we can forgive ourselves. We'll carry kind of elements of shame and guilt around our lives which will dog us like the weights that were carried by London marathon runners. I hope that we really are able to embrace the fact that God utterly loves us and that Christ has unconditionally forgiven us. That's good news. And then when we can embrace that and appropriate and apply it in our lives, we're not only able to forgive ourselves, but we then have the capacity to forgive others. Please, in this church we don't want anybody to leave this building today with any shadow of doubt that God absolutely loves you. Absolutely. And that in Christ there is absolute forgiveness. Say that with me. God loves you so much. Always has. Always will. It's great, isn't it? story of the prodigal son, I led a retreat in Lent on the prodigal using Rembrandt's image of the prodigal. That lovely story in Luke 15 of the son who rejects his father and wanders away and squanders his living, spends his inheritance, ends up in a right mess, ends up working as a slave, a Jew working, feeding off the pig swill. Horrendous place. And it says that he comes to his senses and he returns home and he says, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I know that, but just please, I beg you, let me be one of your slaves. What's the father's response? He rushes out to welcome him. He greets him. He restores him. This son of mine was lost. Now he's restored. He's reconciled. Let's have a party. Bring out the cloak. Put the ring on his finger. That's a lovely picture of the love that God has for every one of us, isn't it? God is watching, waiting, longing, loving, welcoming. And God doesn't want anybody here this morning to feel that they're not loved. Because God loves you. 
I was helped many years ago by a spiritual director, a Catholic monk, and some of you will have to forgive me for mentioning that, who said these words, which are profound. We're not just sinners, but sinners deeply loved by God. There is a difference. Because actually, if you just keep saying, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, kind of psychologically, that kind of damages you. It kind of warps your self-image. You can never love yourself. But when you're able to say, I'm a sinner, but someone who is deeply loved by God, it does make a difference psychologically to our lives. It also impacts the way in which we relate to other people. To know that we're truly forgiven. I don't suppose many sermons use Russell Brand as an illustration. While others of you are no doubt for Christmas presents buying one another commentaries or reading Joyce Meyer, I read Russell Brand's recovery. And it's his story about his life was turned around from addiction. And this is on the front of the cover. And this is what the book's all about. Recover the person you were born to be. And in Jesus, truly, that's what we discover. We discover in Jesus how God intended us to live life. That's really good news, isn't it? That's really encouraging news. To know that we're truly forgiven enables us to live that forgiveness life. To let go of any lie that says you and I are not forgiven. Again, go to the ministry team today because it's a simple matter. We don't want anybody here this morning to think, oh, but there's that, I could not be forgiven about that. That is absolute rubbish. That is a lie. That is a deceit. Let nobody tell you that and certainly don't let Satan whisper it in your ears. I think it was Campolo who gave the illustration about that imagining on the day of judgment that you'd stand before the judgment seat of God and they would play the video back of all the sins of your life. And your mother's there. <laughs> and the play button is hit and it's blank. It's been wiped clean. Romans 5.1 Therefore we are now reconciled with God. We are at peace with God through what Jesus Christ has done. That's good news. In Pidgin English, Romans 5.1 is translated, God him he say he all right. <laughs> God him say you all right. All right? <laughs> Clearly no Pidgin English speakers here. <laughs> and as Christ has forgiven us, utterly, we free of all sin, so we must forgive one another. Dallas Willard, a great... Professor of philosophy, died a couple of years ago now, writer on Christian spirituality. Once we enter the kingdom of God and follow us in the way of Christ, grace and mercy becomes the atmosphere in which we live. It's not psychologically possible for us to really know God's love, forgiveness and grace for us, and at the same time have an unforgiving and hard heart towards others. Why do some of us evangelicals kind of put so much emphasis on truth that we forget grace? And that we end up unconsciously going around policing people and tutting theologically at people? We need to be people of grace. Not just preaching grace, but living grace. I've listened to preachers preach grace and lived condemnation. And it just poisons people. The liberating and life and freedom that Jesus brings is something that is to celebrate in the church and it's good news for those beyond the walls of the church. So let's learn it and live it. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness is a, is a solo activity. Reconciliation involves at least two, if not many more, parties. Forgiveness is not forgetting. You cannot forget the scars, the wounds, the hurts, the brokenness. No, forgiveness accepts that which has been done and the harm that can't be ignored. Because if you remove the harm, 
and pretend it never happened, then there's no place for reconciliation and no place for justice. I don't know if anybody else listened the other week to the radio. There was a program on the Birmingham bombings. And it was really quite fascinating listening to two people who'd been deeply impacted. They'd both lost loved ones in that atrocious terrorist act from the IRA in the 1970s. But it was fascinating and slightly disturbing to listen to one woman who 40 years on is still bitter, chewed up with anger and resentment. And the other person who'd come to a place of forgiveness. It was no secret the fact that she had been helped to come to a place of forgiveness through Christ. The Bible encourages us to be real. You know, there's the kind of right and religious answer to things, and then there's the real answer to things. And the Bible is real. And why I I love the Psalms, I'm I'm teaching in an Anglican college at the moment at St. John's, and uh, we're subverting it with a few nonconformists, but it's still predominantly Anglican. But one of the great things is that every morning you go to morning prayer, and every morning, if you're an Anglican, you read the Psalms. And the Psalms, all life is there. And the Psalms are fantastic because the Psalms are very, very real. So there's that horrendous Psalm which says, Lord, just dash their children, smash them against the walls. And I'm thinking, I don't like that scripture. That's not the God that I want to know. It's not the God I see in Jesus. But actually, if my children had been killed, if my husband's head had been cut off, if my daughter had been raped, there's something within me that says, I want them killed as well. That's what that psalm's about. It's not saying that's what we need to do. It's just being real about things. Because when we hurt, we hurt. And in our hurt, we want to kind of enact. And, you know, God is big enough to take how we really feel about things. See, the psalms are about protest. God, why is this going on? Why is that happening? This is not fair. But they're also about trust. And it's that paradoxical life of faith which is protest and trust. A lot of years ago now, when I moved from Sunderland, where I was pastor of of the church in Sunderland, to begin in the founding early days of the Northumbria community, I went on retreat. And I went to Allermouth Friary. And I went kind of just anticipating that God would speak incredibly powerfully about the kingdom of Northumbria. And after a couple of hours, we'd move on to Britain and the rest of the world. I was excited. I was a bit daunted, a bit challenged, a bit fearful, but I was predominantly excited about the future. And I felt that going on a three and a half day retreat, that God would reveal and give visions. And I spent the first day absolutely in a horrendous place. Because every time I went into silence to pray, just I got barraged with imagery and feelings that I didn't want to have. So at halfway through the morning of the second day, my spiritual director just noticed intuitively or by the spirit that I was struggling. And so he said, would you like to come and have a cup of coffee? I knew the game. (laughs) So I went and had a cup of coffee. Very wise spiritual director. Catholic monk. Smoked a pipe. (laughs) Took about five minutes to answer any question that you put. All deliberate, intentional. And he said, what's going on? So I shared with him. I said, well, I've come here to seek God, to get vision for Northumbria. And all I get is this image of this bloke in our church that I've just left after five years. Oh, really? Tell me more. Now, this bloke actually was one of the the leaders of the church. And for the previous four and a half, five years, 
he had systematically gone around undermining my ministry. Subtly. The most poisonous thing he used to say, Roy's a really good guy, but... but what do you mean, but? I couldn't say. Now, of course, I understood why I was a threat to him, because he had been the blue-eyed boy for many years. And suddenly I arrive on the scene, and at 30, I'm the senior pastor of that church. What I didn't know at the time of calling was that the church had asked him if he would become a senior minister. But it wasn't the right time in his career to do that, so he didn't do it. Because the moment somebody else comes in, unconsciously, I usurp his place. So my spiritual director says, So what word would express how you feel as you're sitting with God alone? And I said, custard, or something sounding like that. (laughs) I don't swear a lot. I think, where did that come from? It came from the depths of my being. Because, you see, for five years, I'd known what had been going on. And because I'd read the scriptures about turning the other cheap and blessing my enemy, and also having a Harrogate education, I'd been very polite... But when I went alone with God, it really hurt. And I cried out to God. And that's being real. You see, people will have hurt you. And the great thing about God is able to take our hurt and our feelings. And God can cope if we even swear a bit. Because sometimes that just comes out and spills out. A few weeks later, when I'm up in Northumberland, I get a telephone from this very same person who is offering for us to have some furniture from the company that he worked for. I mean, the real reason behind that was they needed rid of it, and it was cheaper to get somebody else to come and clear it than actually pay for somebody to go and take it away. But that's to spoil the story. (laughs) And I found myself on the phone, not being angry, not being resentful. And the lovely part of this story is, for the next 15 years, we became friends. And twice a year we played golf. And I thrashed him. But that's... (laughs) And he became a dearly loved friend and a great supporter of the ministry of Northumbria Community. He hadn't really changed, but God had changed me. And being real is being real. To forgive is not to pretend nothing has happened, but to be real and engage with the Psalms. Have the privilege of being engaged and involved a little bit and supportive of people who have been involved in the peace process in Northern Ireland. And let me tell you, we need to be praying for Northern Ireland because those people in the peace process are telling me that they are worried about the implications of Brexit. Whatever I think, let's listen to the people who are engaged in those communities. A friend of mine called Ken, he and his wife led our community for a number of years in Northern Ireland. Ken, as a young man, was a member of the UDA, the Ulster Defence Army. Why did he sign up for the army? Because for the third time, his father's shop had been torched by the provisional IRA. So he's going to fight the IRA. So he becomes a member of the UDA. And then he goes off to university, and when he's at university in a different country, because often God takes you out of your own situation to bring change in your life, he meets with Jesus. And he meets the radical Jesus who says, actually the way of violence is not the way to live. There's a different way. And long story short, Ken goes back And as a Baptist, Protestant, Ken feels that Jesus is calling him to go and live in the lower Ormo, Republican, Catholic-dominated area of Belfast. 
He represented 1.5 of the population of that ward. He didn't get married for a number of years because of the death threats on his life, but he knew that Jesus was calling him to live in that community, identify with its poverty, identify with its injustice. He was called Ken. That meant he could get a job. If your name was Sean, you couldn't get a job in the yards. There was an incident, a terrible incident, as there were many things in the Troubles, in the Sean Graham betting shop. And the UDA came in and just indiscriminately fired at people. Seven people died and another 19 were injured. And Ken that day went on the radio with the local Catholic priest appealing for non-retribution. And they succeeded. It didn't bring about the peace process, but it made a significant contribution to the peace process such that Ken was invited by the Catholic community to actually become the director of the Mornington Community Project. Can you imagine that? A community project that was funded predominantly by Protestants, evangelicals, funding a Catholic community project in the heartland of the provisional IRA. That's forgiveness worked out. That's reconciliation enacted. The Harrods bombing, horrendous bombing in London. The younger woman in the purple coat is a friend called Pam. She was WPC Pam White, who was on duty outside Harrods that day and saw her colleague standing next door to her blown up and splinter her body into smithereens. And sat next to her is that casualty's mother. What did Pam White eventually do? The first thing she did is she turned to drink. Because that's how you dealt with things in those days, you turned to drink. She became an alcoholic. In an alcoholic state, somebody reached out to her in the name of Jesus and she actually became a Christian. And she discovered a whole different way of life. And then Pam decided that she would get to know some of the mindset of those who were terrorists and those who were bombed. And so she set about building friendships with former IRA members. And she ended up, I believe, marrying Sean, who was a member of Sinn Féin, and before that, the IRA. That's the power of God to bring about forgiveness. And for a number of years, I don't know if they ever came to North Allerton, there was a whole series of meetings between former terrorists from both sides of the divide, sharing about how Christ can bring liberation to people's lives. Forgiveness is a way of life that leads to peace and reconciliation. And finally... Well, that's the preachers, finally. We are called to be a community of forgiveness. In Ephesians 2, we read that Christ himself is our peace and he has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Isn't it fantastic that when Jesus died on the cross, one of the accomplishments of the cross is that there does no longer need to be Jew and Gentile. There does no longer need to be male and female. There does need to be no longer divisions, partitions, borders or walls. No boundaries. Because God, through Jesus, is creating a new humanity. That's good news, isn't it? And the new heaven and the new earth will be filled of people from every tribe and nation. Gosh, we're going to get a shock as British white people with all those from all those other nations who are going to come to faith in Christ. Remember the other week, St. George's Day? (laughs) I don't know if anybody saw my blog. Just put on my blog that St. George was not British. St. George was Syrian. So when you see Syrian refugees in North Allerton, give thanks to God that from that nation came St. George. It busts our racism and our nationalism, as the kingdom of God does. Reconciliation is possible for us because 
of our reconciled relationship with God. But we can never see that in isolation from one another. Never. See, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and to love our neighbour as ourselves is bound up together. As one commentator puts it, and I quote, we live as believers on the circumference of a circle. All of us are on that circumference of that circle. God is in the centre. And there's no point on that circle which we can move closer to God without moving closer to our neighbour. We're going to illustrate that. I just, I just need four or five people quickly. Just, just come here. I just need you to, to come and just stand here and hold hands in a circle. Oh, bless you. Thank you. That'll do. Be a big circle for a moment. Right, now watch what's happening here. Imagine that God is in the centre of that circle. And Richard, you want to move closer to God. So move closer to God. Yeah, keep moving. Can you see what's happening? As he moves closer to God, what's happening? Susanna and Peter? Alan even. You've been called Alan, I call you Peter. (laughs) Alan comes in closer. And as Alan comes in closer, so Phil comes in closer. Can you see? Thank you very much. Round of applause for those who helped that. As one of the church fathers said, we cannot go to God alone because if and when we got there, he would ask, where are the others? See, we we all view the Bible through our own cultural lenses and life experiences and we live in a Western society that's very individualistic. So we talk about Jesus being my personal saviour. Absolute rubbish. And I'm not speaking heresy. There's nowhere in the Bible that talks about Jesus is my personal saviour. He is the saviour of the world. He does not belong to you or to me. We bow the knee before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's not my personal property. And we can never say as disciples of Jesus, it's just my little walk with God. Because our relationship with others is bound up with our walk with God. Because that's why we're made the way we're made. In Africa they talk about Ubuntu. That we cannot view ourselves outside of the context of relationships. We cannot see Jesus without seeing the Trinity. Otherwise you you, you do lapse into heresy. If you just put all the weight of emphasis on the Holy Spirit or the fatherhood of God or Jesus, it's the whole lot. When Jesus invites us to enter into the kingdom, he brings us into the family of God. That lovely Trinity Rublev icon of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit sitting at the table and the eyes of Jesus looking out, kind of saying, there's a place for you too. That's a lovely image, isn't it? And we are called to be a community of forgiveness because society needs it. We live in a really conflicted society. Prejudice and bigotry and racism and sexism and sectarianism. I could go on. And violence is increasing. However it happened and whatever side of the divide that we're on, and it is a divide, the whole aftermath of the referendum and Brexit has triggered things that are deeply disturbing within British society. It's not the European Union that's done this to us. What the EU has done or the referendum has done has exposed what is going on within the subsurface of our British society. The problems and the challenges we face are nevertheless great opportunities for us in the church. Great opportunities to live out the gospel, to be witnesses to the kingdom of God coming here on earth as it is in heaven. We can stop the rot. A culture where violence breeds violence, racism breeds racism, bigotry breeds bigotry. Prejudice breeds prejudice. We can actually put a stop to it in the name of Jesus by being the community of forgiveness. I love being a nonconformist, not just when I'm in an Anglican college. 
Because there's a non-conformity, because the ways of the kingdom are different from the ways of the world. And we have the opportunity to non-conform to the ways of the world and witness to the world that there's a way of life that is to be found in Jesus that is life-giving. Not just for the individual, but for the whole community. New Life Baptist Church is not just for the church. New Life Baptist Church is for the kingdom of God in this area. Here's Jean Vanier Gay, the response to war to injustice is to share. The response to despair is limitless trust and hope. The response to prejudice and hatred is forgiveness. To work for community is to work for humanity. To work for peace in community through acceptance of others as they are and through constant forgiveness is to work for peace in the world and for true political solutions. It is to work for the kingdom of God. Amen. You see, we will have different political outlooks. We will have different opinions on Brexit. We will support different football teams. We will like sport or hate sport. We will have different theological emphases. We will have different doctrinal differences. And as a Baptist, one of the principles of being a Baptist is, I respect your right to be wrong. (laughs) It's called the freedom of conscience. That's really, really important. Because otherwise, we get into a state religion that imposes and says, you must believe. And isn't it great that we're able to hold together, and at times it's hard, the diversity there's among us because of the gift that the Holy Spirit gives. Our task is to maintain the unity that the Spirit gives. You know, the ecumenical movement at times has made so many mistakes, done some good things in trying to achieve unity by some policy statement or some liturgy or some act of service together. Actually, what we need to do is just realize the gift that God gives. It's more like Wesley, if your heart is with my heart in love and loyalty to Jesus Christ, come, let's walk the road together. We might have doctrinal differences, but we'll walk the road together in love and loyalty to Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is at work among us. And finally, being the community of forgiveness. God calls us to pray and to ask forgiveness on behalf of others. It doesn't matter that we are not specifically guilty of those things. The prophet Daniel repented for things that he had not personally done. He represented others in going before God to ask for God's forgiveness. And I believe there's a place for us as the church, the community of forgiveness, to seek God's forgiveness for those things that we need, not least as a nation, to repent of. I was reading yesterday about the slave trade. Well, my wife's away, so you've got to read something. And I was reading about the slave trade, and I was just appalled. There was a Baptist convention 260 years ago that met together to decide that actually in reading the scriptures slavery was evil in the sight of God. Baptist pastors in their convention. And then they went back to their congregations and started to share the good news from Ephesians that actually, you know, Christ has abolished these things. But there in their congregations there were people who were slave owners. And they said, no, we're good Christians. And some of the tracts that were published were saying, actually, you do realize that one of the ways in which God is blessing slaves is if they were not slaves, they wouldn't have heard the good news of Jesus. The Southern Baptists split from the American Baptists over that very issue of slavery. God have mercy upon us. We live in a world today of slavery. I don't know if any of you have seen that program, Don't Forget the Driver. Okay, well, that just kind of says a lot about me. It's a comedy program but actually there's a sinister undertone because it's actually about a girl who's fleeing from her country. Asylum seeker, she's come over in the boot of a bus. There's more slavery today than there was 230 years ago. My Bible college principal years ago, principal of Madras Theological Seminary, before he came to this country, 
got into difficulty by apologizing to the Indians for the partition in 1947, where over a lunchtime somebody drew a line and divided Pakistan with India. And what it resulted in, over one million people lost their lives and 10 million people, Hindus in Pakistan and Muslims in India, suffered as a consequence of a decision that we made, well-intentioned. When people talk about Great Britain and Great British Empire, I spoke to an Indian at college three or four years ago now, and they shared with me about their grandparents who lived through that experience of between 15 and 29 million Indians died of starvation while we ruled the empire. Churchill said in 1943, and I quote, I hate Indians, they're beastly people with beastly religion. The famine's their own fault for breeding like rabbits. Lord have mercy. And we wonder sometimes why we have racial tensions. We forget that we too have bequeathed things that have contributed to some of the evils and troubles and terrors of the world today. There are all kinds of things. Slavery, hunger, welcoming the stranger, protecting the widow and orphan, asylum seekers and refugees, child poverty. Margaret, is it something like one in three or four children in Britain today are living under the poverty line? We're the fifth or sixth richest nation in the world. What we're doing to the planet is horrendous. I could weep at what my generation, the baby boomers, have done to bequeath to my children, particularly my children's children. Why does it take a 16-year-old girl with autism to come and speak truth to power to effect some change? Where have we, the friends of heaven, been? Why are we not the friends of the earth? Plastic is polluting our seas and our environment. The Bible has a lot to say about relationships and forgiveness. Not just for us individually, but for us as a community of disciples of the church, but also for the world. I hope I've shared with you this morning good news for the world beyond the walls of the church. Because we pray that your kingdom come, Lord, here on earth as it is in heaven. So how do we respond? Remember that first word that was used? Signifying let it go. In a few moments we're just going to give people an opportunity to respond to what God has been saying to you today. Come, At the foot of the cross, take one of the little pebbles and if there's any area of life where you are unforgiving of anybody or any situation, let it go. For God's sake and your own sake and their sake, let it go. Drop it into the pool and it's gone. Cry out to God. Offer it to God. And then that second word about the charismai. Remember the Lord forgave you, you must forgive others. Bless. I would hate to have been Uduai and Syntyche. Those two people in the New Testament where Paul has to say, Euodiae and Syntyche, please agree with one another. I'd hate to be in the Bible for that reason. Sometimes translated as odious and soon touchy. And every church has an odious and soon touchy. People are just kind of prickly and just can't get on. Well, here's an opportunity to reverse any attitudes in our lives, to bless those who've hurt us or wounded us. You might go up to them and say it, but actually the first thing I want to encourage you to do is come and take one of these... Blank lollipop sticks, doesn't matter which colour, don't signify anything. And I'd simply invite you to write their name on the lollipop stick and put it in the prayer pot. And as you do that, bless them. Lord, I might need you to help this, but bless them. Bless that person who has hurt me, who has wounded me, who has, has scarred me. It's a way of dealing with it. And then in that corner there, I'm going to invite some of you to go and simply just pray together for those things that we as a nation need to repent of at this time.
like Daniel, praying for the sin of our nation and asking for God in his mercy to help us. We're going to read in conclusion scripture together. And uh, we're going to do it in different sections and we're going to do that really embarrassing thing. I'm an introvert. I'm in the pulpit. I get away with this. I don't have to do this. Would you hold hands with those who are next to you? It's an extrovert's delight and an introvert's nightmare. But don't worry, it won't last too long. And in the light of what I've shared this morning, you'll have to forgive me anyway. We're holding hands as a symbolic gesture to say, actually, we belong together. We are together. God calls us together. So, the team, what we call our team. You know who you are? Read this scripture to us. This is from 1 John 3. Generation wise, that's the 25 to 39 year olds. Okay, as we uh, conclude our worship together and our morning of sharing, please take this opportunity to respond to the thing that God's been doing in our lives alone and together. The ministry team are here also to pray about any need or situation that you would have someone, a brother and sister and friend share with you. Come and pray about those areas where we cry out to God for mercy. Come and lay at the cross those things that we need to let go of. And come and bless people in the name of Christ. Name them and bless them. And to the glory of God in the church and in the world. Lord, your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.